And I've titled tonight's message, God of Vengeance Shine Forth. Stolen from Psalm 94.1. Tonight we venture on our theme of Route 66 and we come across the short book of Nahum. Despite only being three chapters, it has been said that Nahum is the most impassioned, the most fervent of all the Old Testament minor prophets. In the Septuagint, this book is found directly after the book of Jonah. And that is by no coincidence. The Greek translators of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they understood this book to be something of a continuation a part two of Jonah. And having said that, it's important to recall where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you can remember, this prophet had been used by God as a channel for divine grace to the inhabitants of Nineveh. Despite his reluctance, his constant complaining, God uses him to lead hundreds of thousands to repentance and to usher in a time of, of unprecedented blessing for this great city. In God's word, we were shown four characteristics of divine grace that you ought to understand that would lead us to understanding, to distinguishing God's good work in our lives. And those characteristics were God's admonishing, providential, saving, and forbearing grace. This city that had been the direct recipient of, of divine favor, now in the time of Nahum, faces the wrath of God. The question is why? What changed? What caused the wrath of God to fall on the nation that had been so blessed by Yahweh? Did Jonah change the mind of God after all? In chapter 4, he expressed his, his desire for God to show himself as mutable, to change his mind regarding the Ninevites and show partiality to the Jews. Was it enough to convince God to see things his way? I know this sounds ridiculous, but consider it how often you and I, we approach the Almighty and we perceive him as though a, a chess piece in our lives, even subconsciously sometimes, thinking that he can be influenced by our, our prayers, our wills, and our pleas. God does promise to act, but not according to your will. He promises to respond to the prayer of the faithful, but not the unfaithful. John 9.31. And as such, it was not God bending to the will of Jonah that led to the book of Nahum. Rather, it was God's response, his exacting and justly ordained punishment for what happened in this century between the two prophets. To get in the right mindset before we approach Nahum, it's important we consider the historical account. The narrative of Jonah takes place somewhere around 780 B.C., and what followed was the greatest recorded prosperity that has, uh, was ever recorded in, in histories, or excuse me, in the history of Assyria. They had already been the world's leading power, but spared by God, they began to spread their kingdom, building rows and palaces, accumulating wealth. And as time went on, the repentant generation that stood before Jonah on the streets of Nineveh began to die off. And by extension, its entire empire was fully immersed into its former depravity. At the same time, the northern ten tribes of Israel continued to indulge in their wickedness. Please turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. We'll be there in the following chapters for a little bit, so keep your thumb there. 
2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 15, speaking of the downfall of Israel. It says, They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warning with which he warned them. They followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire, practiced divination and enchantment, sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Israel had strayed from their loyalty to Yahweh. They openly and proudly worshipped the gods of their neighboring pagan, pagan kingdoms, consumed with their idolatry, their, their adultery, and their wickedness. So evil was Israel that they would actually sacrifice their babies, their, their young children, being burned alive that they might appease these pagan deities. And as such, God would remove them by his sight, from his sight, by the way of this Assyrian king. 722 B.C., just 50 or 60 years after the book of Jonah takes place, Samaria, the capital of Israel, would fall. And so absolute was the destruction of the northern nation that it would never again recover. And shortly after, in the year 701, under another king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, the superpower would set its eyes toward the house of David. After destroying many fortified cities of Judah, subjecting them to tax, war was declared against Jerusalem. 2 Kings 18, verse 28, tells of the interaction between two of the messengers of Sennacherib and, and the Jews. Picks, uh, verse 28 picks up, Then Rabshak took and cried with a loud voice in Judea, and saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me, and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree, and drink each of his waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Zarephane, Hena, Eva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Whom among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord, Yahweh, should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Sennacherib throws down the gauntlet before Yahweh, saying that not even the God of Judah is able to save the Jews. And after receiving counsel from the prophet Isaiah, Hezekiah turns to the Lord and prays for deliverance, at which point God responds with a message for the king of Assyria. 2 Kings 19, verse 22. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? 
and haughty, haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with many chariots I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. And I entered its farthest lodging place, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and the sole of my feet I dried up with all the rivers of uh, Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now, I have brought it to pass. That you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were, were short of strength. They're, they were dismayed and put to shame. They were as vegetation of the field and as the green herb. As grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Sennacherib had overstepped his authority. God was to serve as, or he was to serve as the admonishing hand of God and instead challenges God himself. And the Lord's response is correcting the king's pride. Yahweh is saying, I am the one who ordained it. I am the one who gave you victory after victory, who allowed you to subdue the nations, and yet you challenge me as if you are my equal. He shows Sennacherib that he is but a wild animal who God will control with his bridle in his mouth and his hook in his nose. This is played out directly after this prophecy in verse 35. Says, then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. Assyria had decimated the land of Israel. They had dealt a crippling blow to the house of Judah. And after the prayer and repentance of King Hezekiah, God delivered his people and enacted his will of vengeance against the wicked Assyrians. Was not God that changed? It was Nineveh. Just as Israel had time after time, Nineveh's heart was hardened. They profaned the very God that showed them mercy while killing his people. The deliverance of Jerusalem by the angel of the Lord was but a temporary salve for their wound. But the Jews cried out along with the psalmist in Psalm 94, 1, O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. And God answers through Nahum. He reveals four aspects of divine vengeance that you must know so that you will revere Yahweh. Nahum 1, 1 it begins the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Now, verse 1, it gives us a brief introduction to the prophet, extremely brief, simply as an Elkishite. There's no lengthy introduction to the prophet as there was Jonah, as, as if we can glean something from his character. Rather, he seems to be fully focused on getting to the point, telling us what he's here for. And that is exactly what he does in the first verse of his prophecy. Verse 2, to show God as a jealous and avenging God. No doubt reminding the Jews of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine in retribution. In due time their foot will slip. 
For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. The song of Moses here testifies to the reality later echoed through Hebrews and Romans, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And by definition, vengeance really is double-pronged here. It's important to know for the rest of the message. It is the rendering of a just punishment upon a wrongdoer, as well as the compensation, the retribution given to the victim of the wrongdoing. That is to say, if, for example, I were to go outside and steal Logan's sweet car and drive it down Davis and wrap it around a light post, then I would receive punishment fitting the crime, jail, community service, whatever that may be. But in addition to that, I would have to pay him some, some sort of retribution, some compensation. And now take this analogy and multiply it by the love that God has for his people, the love that he has for his own holiness, and the hate that he has for the wickedness of mankind. And that's where Nahum begins in these opening verses. Really beginning in verse 2 and going through verse 8, we see the first aspect of God's vengeance, which is that his vengeance is formidable, meaning inspiring fear or respect through being impressively large, powerful, intense, or capable. He expounds on this characteristic so vividly, so perfectly, really, that words fail to impress upon you a, a greater understanding. He shows the absolute power God has over creation. Beginning in verse 2, he says, A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. Excuse me. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, and the world and all the inhabitants in it. Nahum saying that God is exalted above the clouds. His, his power and his presence are so vast that the clouds are but as dust to him. And what more? By his command, the seas dry up. Lebanon withers. Lebanon was a, uh, a green, lush forest. Think today, if, if this was to be a, a contemporary commentary, the Amazon rainforest. As if by the command of God, 1.4 billion acres of the Amazon rainforest would simply dry up and wither. This statement is all-encompassing for the reader. God is greater than the heavens. He lords over the waters. He controls the forest and causes the mountains to shake in his presence. Where will you run? Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken up by him. We've established there's no where to run from the wrath of God. And now Nahum addresses the wrath itself and says in rhetorical form, no one can stand before the pouring out of the burning wrath of God. If you feel like there's a thousand pounds pressing in on your chest, well, that's intentional. But Nahum here reminds the Jews, as well as us, that is, if you are in Christ, this is good news. Verse 7, the Lord is good. 
a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. He's saying God does not forget the faithful in the midst of wrath. But in definition, true definition of vengeance, the very actions that are meant to terrify and condemn the wicked are the same actions that are meant to encourage and show comfort and love to the faithful in Christ. Written in light of these atrocities done to the Jews by the Assyrians, God is reassuring them. He is their refuge. He cares for them. He loves them. Christian, consider the world today. It hates you. The effects of sin have so polluted our society that the gospel, which once proliferated this country, is vile and detestable in the eyes of your neighbor. You've aligned yourself with your master, and in doing so, you have marked yourself out for for anger, for ridicule, for the wrath of the world. But Christ loves you. And praise be to God that the truth is that no one is more formidable, more powerful than our Lord and our shelter. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, 4. Having established God's vengeance as formidable, as if higher than the heavens, greater than creation, Nahum switches gears and he addresses the, the efficacy Second aspect, his vengeance is efficacious. Verses 9 through 15. That is to say that it is effective in producing its desired result. Verses 9 through the first half of 12, as well as 14, show that his vengeance, in his vengeance, God effectively crushes rebellion. Starting in verse 9. He says, whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble, completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. In verse 14, Speaking again to the Assyrians, to the king, the Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. You are contemptible. That is to say that for all of the might and the wisdom of Assyria... God will crush them to stubble, consume them in his wrath, and there will be no hope for them to rise up against Israel and create a distress another time because there will be no one left to oppose God. Even though they're at full strength, God will cut off the name of Sennacherib and prepare his grave for he is contemptible. I know we're learning a lot of new words tonight, and we're going to learn another one. Bear with me. If you didn't already know, the word contemptible is defined as a person or a thing that is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. Though Sennacherib tipped his hand in in 2 Kings 19, showing that he thought that he was as great or even greater than Yahweh, God's response is, 
for all the trouble and distress that you've caused my people, you remain nothing, nobody, beneath my consideration. The most powerful and feared man in the world at that time is nothing before Yahweh. And meanwhile, as to show this simultaneous relationship of God's vengeance on Assyria and God's vengeance for Judah, Nahum, he hops back and forth in this section. In verses 12b and 13, as well as verse 15, we see God's vengeance effectively redeems his people. His vengeance effectively redeems his people. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. Verse 15, behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is completely cut off. God begins here with a statement that causes pause. He says, though I have afflicted you. What does that mean? There's an important and often misunderstood concept of God's admonishment that really comes to the forefront here. Because of their wickedness, God raised up the Assyrians to punish the nation Israel. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 26 says, So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, even the spirit of Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he carried them away into exile, namely the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Halal, Habor, Harah, and to the river of Gozan to this day. And this wasn't a secluded event in Scripture either. We will know shortly in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, six <clears throat> that God will punish the nation Judah for their unfaithfulness to the Chaldeans. He says, verse 5, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth, to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And here in verse 12 of our text, it's clear God, it was him who allowed the Assyrians to oppress the Jews, as, <clears throat> as said earlier in our introduction, in 2 Kings 19.25, that it was God who planned that Sennacherib should make these fortified cities of Judah a ruinous heap. And we know because of James 1.13 and 14 that God himself was not causing them to sin, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, but he himself does not tempt anyone. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So God instead used the the lustful, sinful intentions of the nations to discipline his children. And afterwards, bound by his own just character, he would carry out his punishment on the wrongdoers. I think lastly, it's, it's important to address the reason behind the discipline. And consider a grapevine. Why would, you, why would you not let a grapevine just grow and grow? I mean, logic dictates it would, it would produce more grapes, right? Wrong. Why prune it? When you prune a grapevine, it's primarily to rid it of all its dead, diseased, unfruitful branches, which left unchecked can actually hinder the, the yield of the entire vine. And when you prune it, you cut it back. 
The fact is that it, it begins to, to grow grapes, to, to yield cropped faster and faster and more plentiful because the disease is gone and the fresh air and the sunlight are abundant. When God disciplines Judah, when he disciplines you, Christian, it is to draw attention to the festering problem. Whether we're complete, completely oblivious or if we fall into a season of sin, it is through his love that he disciplines. Under the guidance of Isaiah and Hezekiah, the, the nation of Judah repented and responded correctly to the discipline of the Lord. They began to reap the blessings of a renewed relationship with Yahweh. And the purpose for God's disciplines made clear for the good of his people and for the glory of his own name. God goes on to tell Judah that he will remove the oppression from the, of the Assyrians from them. That they should go back to their lives, keeping their feasts, keeping their vows that they no doubt made while suffering the onslaught of the Assyrians. And the last verse of the chapter really wraps up this point. Verse 15, it says, For never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. God sees his will through. And it is completely effective, in no way sufficient. This is really where Nahum stops addressing the Jews altogether. And in the entirety of chapter 2, he turns his focus only to these Assyrians and the wrath that God is about to show them. God's already declared himself in his vengeance to be formidable, to be efficacious, to be effective. And now wanting to make clear to Nineveh that their judgment is coming, in chapter 2, we see his vengeance is inevitable. That is the third aspect of his, of his vengeance. It is inevitable. God goes right into almost taunting Nineveh. The one who scatters has come against you. Verse 1. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. He's saying, you've, you've provoked me. You've challenged me with the slaughter of my people. So get ready because I'm coming. But the irony here is that God tells them to prepare for war. And in the very next section of that verse, he says, he declares that he is already victorious. In verse 2, we see that God's redemption for his people is inevitable. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. He's saying that redemption of his people is inevitable. Through his vengeance, God will redeem and save his people. As if to clarify, once more Nineveh will be defeated. He, he sandwiches this entire chapter really in two definitive statements. We already saw in verse 2, he declares his vengeance for his people. And at the end of the chapter in verse 13... His vengeance or his wrath on Assyria is declared once again. These two motifs, these two aspects, being constantly shown time and time again in this book. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up your chariots, her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lion. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Verse 13, it shows God's victory over the wicked is inevitable. Again, this is prophecy. 
It's important to keep in mind none of this happened yet. This book was likely written sometime between 660 and 630 B.C. Keeping in mind it would have been after the, the Assyrian attack in 701 on Judah and before the demise of Nineveh in 612. God is speaking as though their demise is currently unfolding, as if they're watching it take place. That's how certain it is. And then in verse 13, after depicting the fall of Assyria at the hand of the Babylonians for 10 verses, God reminds them, it is me. I am against you. Though the trumpets and the banners may be that of Babylon's, God does not want them to miss that it is him that has declared war. Well, the wrath of God has been one of the most controversial issues amongst scholars for the past 2,000 years. Today, it's come to a head with, with atheism, agnosticism, with liberal theology, and they're all agreed. They don't like it. So what does society do in response? We amputate the wrath of God from his character. Almost as if we were children's plugging, children plugging our ears and, and shouting at the top of our lungs because we don't want to hear about God's wrath. Well, what do we want? Much like the pagans of Nahum's time or, or the Greeks and Romans in the time of Christ, we want to go back to Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. And we want, to, we want to swap it. So man created God in his own image. Nobody will say that, but that's exactly what we do when we take Scripture and only attribute the things of God to the things of God, what we want him to be. We assume the role of creator and subject God to our own criticism. Well, news flashes, God's wrath is inevitable whether you are willing to recognize it or not. He's revealed himself in his word as both loving and wrathful. R.C. Sproul, one of the most admired theologians of the last generation, puts it well. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, and no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, no wrath is an idol. Where would Judah be with no wrath? Unavenged. Instead, if, if God was how we want him to be today, then there would be no vengeance. Imagine being a child in the midst of this Assyrian onslaught safely behind the walls of Jerusalem and you find that your family, your friends, everybody you've ever loved is on the other side and they've been murdered by the Assyrians. But what do you do? You pray for your God. Pray for deliverance. Pray for protection and, and for justice for your family. But wait, God's not wrathful, right? He's just an easygoing, loving grandfather in the sky. That wouldn't hurt anyone. No, it's because of the wrath of God that robbers, that murderers, that rapists are punished. It is the wrath upon the wicked that restrains sin and justifies his vengeance. Which is the fourth point this evening, chapter 3. His vengeance is just. Having described the siege of Nineveh, which would have taken place some years later by Babylon, God uses chapter 3 to look back on it, even though it hasn't even happened yet. In doing so, he himself addresses the reason for bringing all this about in the first place. 
Verse 1, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Born in the 400s BC, a Greek historian by the name of Tessius, he took a keen interest in Assyria. Though most of his writings are now gone, what does remain are fragments in other people's writings, just copies of a copy of a copy. Nonetheless, he tells of the great fall of Nineveh. He said, after dealing a great blow to the armies of Babylon... Assyria retreated back into their capital walls to celebrate. And it was in this moment of drunken stupor that God struck. The city sat on the bank of the mighty Tigris River. The walls of Nineveh were 50 feet high, thick enough to carry three chariots going side by side. And we're not given a direct narrative as to how the water broke through the wall like we are with Moses in the sea or with Joshua in the Jordan River. Nonetheless, chapter 2, verse 6 makes clear. The water flooded the city. It caused much destruction. The enemies of Assyria stormed the capital, and Nineveh was lost. God takes vengeance on the Assyrians' Assyrians' unfaithfulness. Verse 4. Harlotries really speak of unfaithfulness. All throughout the Old Testament, we see... Israel's performing harlotries means that they're being unfaithful, unfaithful to their God. Here with Nineveh, they, they're being unfaithful really in three ways. The first is expressed lower in the verse that they would sell nations by their harlotries. Assyria was not only incredibly ruthless, but they were unfaithful to their word. They were deceiving nations, all of these smaller, less significant nations who feared Assyria. They would form alliances with the king of Nineveh. And Nineveh would he'd play the savior. Just pay a small tax, make, make a small commitment, and you'll have the strongest nation in the world backing you. So they would, and Assyria would deceive them, inflicting higher and higher taxes until they could no longer afford to pay the king of Assyria. At which point... It would be used as a reason to break this alliance, and Assyria would capture the nations, selling off families, splitting them up, murdering thousands. The families of the defeated people, after being sold off, would go into foreign lands, and in their place, these foreigners would be supplanted into the nations that were just defeated, as if that nation never existed. This is exactly what happened with Israel. 2 Kings, Kings chapter 16, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, he made a pledge of service to Assyria for protection from the king uh, Aram as well as the, the northern tribes. And Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of Assyria at that time, gladly accepted. With, no assur- or with the assurance of, of no interference run of their war on Israel, 
They attacked first Damascus and would later on go on to attack Israel, capturing the nation and exiling them. And in the process, giving the nation of Israel to the foreign people. As we're all aware, they would also go to breaking the covenant with Judah and invade and provoke the wrath of God. And secondly, they were unfaithful in their idolatry. In the literal meaning of the word, they performed harlotries to appease the pagan god of the Assyrians, Ishtar. Forming religious public orgies as an act of worship to this idol. And God, being righteous and just, could not let this evil go unpunished. Leading to the final act of unfaithfulness, which really was the first one to be committed after all. They were unfaithful to the God that spared them. Only about a hundred years before this text did Jonah stand in the streets of Nineveh and declare, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And what ensued was the immediate wholesale repentance of a nation from the king down. They fasted and cried for mercy from Yahweh because they knew God's wrath was formidable. It was effective and it was inevitable. And they understood something back then that America's forgotten today. That is, if God's wrath were to visit the nation, it would be entirely just. I've never really uh, had the opportunity to serve in a jury. But thanks to my lovely wife, I have seen enough law and order to get the gist. I understand that the person who's been accused of something hires another individual to convince other people that he didn't do it, all while the grieved party hires a different individual to convince people he did do it. It's a flawed system, but it depends because it depends entirely on the, on the sinner's testimony. But it is rooted in the prototype in the court of heaven, which aim the aim is justice. Now, can you imagine if? everyone just stopped recognizing the authority of the court. Not even arguing their innocence, rather arguing their obligation to the court itself. They deny the authority of God. Oh. The Ninevites denied the authority of God before the, the judge can you imagine somebody going to court and, and being accused of the most vile, heinous things you could imagine? Being accused of, of murder, terrorism, all the things Assyria was accused of. Standing up there, hearing the sentence, and instead of arguing their innocence, to simply say, can't we just let it go? Can I just have my things and be gone? I mean, I really don't think what I did was that big a deal. It sounds ridiculous. But that's exactly what our nation does. That's exactly what we do. We completely dismiss the authority that God has over his court, over his law. We don't even try to hide our sin. The men, the women of this nation are lost in their lust, and they don't care. They're proud of it. Nineveh once stood in the court of heaven, 
Assyria, it stood before the tribunal of Yahweh and was shown grace because of the recognition of their sin and the mercy of the one who sits on the throne. And now, again, they stand before the judgment, not repentant, but full of pride, mocking the court of God, confident that they will be acquitted and avoid any wrath. But what is revealed to us here in Nahum is that God did lay down a verdict. Nineveh is guilty. In his just vengeance, he punished the wicked. But that's not all. The beauty of God is is seen in his long-suffering. Even his justice, which should be dealt on sinners the very moment sin is present in the heart, shows forbearance. Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The Lord is slow to anger. Two common misconceptions concerning the wrath of God. A little footnote on the bottom of your handout, something that can't be missed from this passage. People are often prone to consider the wrath of God seen in the flood or the plagues as immediate anger, unfettered. But consider these examples. Yes, we know that God raised up Pharaoh for this express purpose, to deny his people freedom so that God would be on greater display. Exodus 9.16 But ponder this. Eight times Moses pled with Pharaoh to release God's people. Eight times the house of Pharaoh and the entire nation of Egypt were given the opportunity to repent before the God of Israel. And in abundant grace, God allowed the Egyptians time, time to come to him before he unleashed his vengeance and justified his wrath. Consider Noah in 2 Peter 2.5. Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. How long did it take for Noah to build the ark? Most people believe it's somewhere between 100 and 120 years. We're introduced to him in Genesis. He's 500 years old. When he's told to board the ark, he's 600 years old. As a preacher of righteousness, what do you think he did for 100 years? In God's forbearance, he delayed judgment for Noah and his family and at the same time still proclaimed his just wrath, impending wrath, for a hundred years through the mouth of Noah. And now back, back to the Assyrians, God delayed judgment. He could have struck them down at any point between Jonah in 780 and their destruction in 612, but he didn't. In his grace, he waited and at no time was Psalm 86.5 untrue. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. The second misconception, his wrath simply will not come. What happens when you're told something's going to happen again and again and again? Maybe it's tonight you're hearing about the impending wrath of God. Maybe you've been in the church for years and you hear about the impending wrath of God. They say it's going to come. It never does. You begin to believe it never will. 
How many of you have, have heard the truth of the wrath of God and, and hit the snooze button? Maybe you're living in sin tonight. You come to Roots on a regular basis. You enjoy the friendship, but you've never truly repented of your sin. You think you can have the best of both worlds, the blessing of God and the love of the flesh. After all, the wrath of God is it's never really going to come. The people of Noah's time, the Egyptians of Moses' time, the Assyrians of Nahum's time, all made the same mistake. Where are they now? Their bodies are in the ground. Their souls, if unrepented, are waiting for the final judgment in which they will be thrown into the lake of fire. God is a vengeful God. He is formidable in power. He is effective in his will. He is just in character, yet forgiving in love. It does not make, or it does not matter what precautions you take against the wrath of God. In chapter 3, verse 14, God tells them to draw water for the siege, to strengthen their fortifications, to increase in number like the locusts. Why? To testify to the might of Yahweh, just like the time of Pharaoh. Bolster yourselves up. Get as strong as you can because I'm coming. And when he does, when he is victorious, he is glorified all the more. As he says in verse 19, there is no relief, no cure for the wound apart from the forgiveness of God that the Assyrians. Apart from the forgiveness of God, the Assyrians and you have no hope. It's a heavy message, I know. But it's not a light topic that we discussed tonight. The wrath of God is, is real. It's more certain than our next breath. But there is hope. Just as the Jews received hope and deliverance at the hands of God's vengeance, that same hope is offered to you tonight. You deserve God's God's vengeance for offending his holy law. And through his judgment, his law is upheld justly so. There was never a possibility for God to just forget your sin and sweep it under the rugs. Or he would not be just. There, there was only one way ever to rid you of your sin, and that was through a substitution, through a, through a propitiation. It's as if Jesus Christ took your filthy clothes, your garments, your rags, bore them upon his back, took your punishment upon the cross, and gave you his righteous robe, shown holy before the Father. Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ to receive the fullness of his vengeance on the cross and at the same time rewarded us for what Christ did. And in this, we see the reverse of vengeance. We see the wrongdoers justified and forgiven and the one who had wrong done crushed and destroyed. Believer, every time you knowingly sin, you, you mock the death of Christ that was paid for you. So I exhort you, knowing the power of vengeance of God, revere him who loves you. 
Live your life as an act of worship and do not transgress the blood that was paid for your life. If you're here tonight and you haven't repented of sin, you've never come to Christ in loving obedience and faith, consider Nahum. Consider the vengeance of God. There is no greater testimony. His wrath is all-powerful, inescapable, absolutely certain, and unarguably just. Christ has come off the cross. He has ascended to the right hand on power. He will take vengeance. He will show his wrath to all those who reject his sacrifice. You were condemned and set apart before the judgment of Christ ever came, before he was ever on that cross. You were destined for judgment. Now that the way is clear and the admission is paid, how much more judgment will you heap on yourself by denying God still? But call upon his name. Repent of your sin. Know that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He lived the perfect life that you were meant to live. Repent like the Ninevites of Jonah's day and receive the blessing of God and life. Or remain ignorant, stubborn, in love with your flesh. And be like the Ninevites of Nahum's day, receiving the full vengeance of God. Let's pray. God, it is your right as creator, as the one above, to set the standard for our conduct and actions. It is only your right to set apart what is holy, good, and just, and what is sinful and wicked. Help us to correct our hearts, God, through your spirit. May we realign our way of thinking, no longer arguing whether we think it's right or not, and simply submitting to you. For you are loving, and you are just, and you are the shelter of the faithful who find refuge in you, yet you are fearsome and wrathful. And your anger burns against those who do wicked. May we repent of our sin as believers. Help us to feel the weight of your holy conviction. And as unbelievers tonight, help us face the fullness of your wrath that we might repent before you. We praise you, God, for you are holy as is your word. Amen.